Well, we'll start this morning by spending a few minutes sorting through what just happened at Three Ring Circus over there in Rome, the, the Synod on the Family. Even after decades of this kind of warfare, it doesn't seem that most devout Catholics have a clear understanding of the revolutionary strategy. The goal of the revolutionaries is not to actually change the teaching of the Church. That's not actually their goal. They're far too clever for that. In a certain sense, they don't even care, although they're not necessarily going to say that. The way they play the game is that even if the teaching of the Church be stated in ever clearer and even stronger terms, they still win. All they shoot for is results. If they get the results they want, the teaching is a moot point. The modern revolutionaries have principally focused upon loosening the constraints imposed upon mankind, the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. In order to get a proper context for these recent battles, we'll briefly consider their greatest success thus far. In 1963, Pope Paul VI asked the Pontifical Commission on Population, Family, and Birth Rate, it was commonly referred to as the Birth Control Commission, to determine whether or not the use of the birth control pill, which had been recently developed, was that condemned by the teaching of the Church. The Commission delivered its final report to the Pope in June 1966. In this report, they argued that artificial birth control was not intrinsically evil, and the Catholic couples should be allowed to decide for themselves about what methods to use. Even though this report was intended for the eyes of the Pope only, it was leaked to the press in the spring of 1967. And in the press, it was then played up in such a way, on the one hand, as to put pressure directly on the Holy Father himself, and on the other hand, as to create an atmosphere, an expectation that a loosening up, or perhaps even a change in church teaching was just around the bend. In July 1968, roughly two years after the report was in, and a full year after the leak to the press, the Pope finally issued a vitae, his encyclical, which upheld the perennial teaching of the Church condemning contraception. Enter Father Charles Curran, a Roman-trained moral theologian, who, among other things, personally spearheaded the offensive against Humana Vitae. On the day after the encyclical was released, Father Curran, along with a whole host of other so-called theologians who had been waiting for this moment, released a press statement dissenting from the papal teaching. Father Curran later described the result of this press statement. I quote from Father Curran himself. Our quick, forceful response, supported by so many theologians, accomplished its purpose. The day after the encyclical was promulgated, American Catholics could read in their morning papers about their right to dissent and the fact that Catholics could, in theory and in practice, disagree with the papal teaching and still be loyal Roman Catholics. Close quote, Father Charles Curran. Well, here we are. By the way, he goes to Mass uh, at a parish not far from here. Uh, he needs your prayers. Keep him in your prayers. This man needs prayers. Okay, so what happened? Did the teaching of the Church change? No, of course not. It's not going to, and it can't. But in spite of that, the revolutionaries have had a spectacular victory by any way you want to measure it. 
Remember, their goal is not to change the teaching of the church. Their goal is to change behaviors, the practice. All they're shooting for is results. A Gallup poll done in May of 2012 gives us some, some idea of just how successful they've been. 82% of U.S. Catholics say birth control is morally acceptable, close quote. 82% of Catholics dis- dissent from the teaching of the church. In other words, 82% of the people who claim to be Catholic actually belong to another religion. But we don't need Gallup polls to figure this out. Just visit your average Catholic parish at any Sunday Mass and take a look around at the size of the families. I'd be really surprised if the percentage of priests and bishops were a lot higher than 82%. After all, when's the last time you heard of a bishop or a priest speaking out on contraception? When's the last time you heard of a bishop writing a pastoral letter to his flock about contraception? Guilty silence from the pulpits? Guilty silence from the chanceries? So the revolutionary's tactic is to make a clever use of the secular press and theologians, manipulate the situation to create an atmosphere, an expectation, the loosening up or perhaps even a change in church teaching is just around the bend, and by this means to change the beliefs and ultimately the behaviors of the faithful. And don't make any mistake, this victory, this stunning success of the revolutionaries to convince the average Catholic that birth control is morally acceptable, this has flung open the sewers from which this whole toxic culture of death has burbled forth. There's a diabolical logic that flows from accepting the use of contraception. If a society believes that contraception is morally acceptable, then obviously it follows that the marital act isn't going to be seen as really being ordered towards babies. And if the marital act isn't really ordered towards babies, then it's basically just some sort of recreational activity. And if it's just some sort of recreational activity, then should a baby be conceived, it's not particularly surprising that a couple might go, hey, where did that come from? I didn't sign up for this and then turn to emergency contraception to get rid of the baby. The more common word for emergency contraception in our society is abortion. That's exactly the role abortion plays in our society. We want to have a party and no babies are invited. And if this is seen as simply a recreational activity without being ordered towards babies as a finality, well, at that point, there's a lot of possibilities. Anything And everything goes, married, unmarried, perversions, you name it. When the general mass of people have adopted a contraceptive mindset, then the whole concept of marriage itself becomes unintelligible. Why shouldn't everyone be able to express themselves in this way with whomever or whatever they choose? It's just a recreational activity. Who are you to judge? Now, what does any of this have to do with a synod? It has everything to do with the synod. Everything. But before we get into that, let's pause for a minute 
to make sure we're grounded in a correct Catholic understanding of certain aspects of the papal office. We'll briefly consider a few brilliant and slightly edited observations made by Father John Hunwick. Quote, A Catholic is obliged to be in communion with the See of St. Peter. One is under no strict obligation to like the currently reigning pontiff, nor to agree with him, nor to think that he's a man of prudence, although I think it is a mark of the Catholic way of thinking to give him the benefit of any doubt. You have to be in communion with him and to accept anything he defines as catheter to be the teaching of Christ. When in his ordinary magisterium he affirms the church's teaching, and Francis has done a lot of that, you are thankful for it. Let's just pause for a moment, make sure everybody understands what we just meant when we read that from that last sentence, okay? We only have time for a little thumbnail sketch today. The Pope has different levels at which he can teach. Only two of those are infallible. First is extraordinary infallible papal magisterium. That's when he teaches ex cathedra. We can tell an ex cathedra statement by the presence of four notes. There's four notes in every one of these statements. Number one, he's teaching by virtue of his apostolic authority, and he'll say so. Number two, on a matter of faith or morals. Number three, with intention of making a definite decision. Number four, to be held by the whole church throughout the world. That would be an act of his extraordinary, infallible papal magisterium. Examples would be like when Pius XII defined the dogma of the Assumption in 1950, or the canonization of saints, for example, the canonization of, of, of St. John XXIII and St. John Paul II recently. The second mode of infallible teaching of the Pope is when he exercises ordinary, infallible papal magisterium. In this case, he repeats what was all, held always and everywhere by all Orthodox teachers of the faith. Examples would be when the Pope condemns contraception or states women can't be priests. Now, with all that in mind, it is a complete misunderstanding of the office to think the Pope is infallible every time he teaches, preaches, or exercises office. Blessed John Henry Newman comments on that very point. Quote, A Pope is not infallible in his laws, nor in his commands, nor in his acts of state, nor in his administration, nor in his public policy, close quote. And then the blessed asked, quote, Was St. Peter infallible on that occasion at Antioch when St. Paul withstood him? Was St. Victor infallible when he separated from his communion, the Asiatic churches? Or Liberius when in like manner he excommunicated St. Athanasius? And to come to later times was Gregory XIII when he had a medal struck in honor of the Bartholomew massacre? No Catholic ever pretends that these popes were infallible in these acts. Close quote, Blessed John Henry Newman. Back to Father Hunwick. You have to be in communion with the Pope and accept anything he defines ex cathedra to be the teaching of Christ. When in his ordinary magisterium he affirms the church's teaching, and Francis has done a lot of that, you are thankful for it. When you have a problem with some order action, you lean over backwards to see it in the best possible light. But your duties of faithfulness to Christ do not mean that you have to be pathologically fawning towards whoever happens to be the current bishop of Rome. One thing that I very much like about this pontiff is the encouragement he has given people to speak the plain truth, boldly without fear or favor. If we fail to accept this gracious invitation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Close quotes. So being the vicar of Christ does not guarantee the popes the bishops of Rome will be holy 
or prudent or wise or competent as they ought to be. And it certainly does not mean that everything they teach will be infallible. We'll make all those distinctions much clearer at a later date. Today, we'll take the Pope's invitation to speak plainly, boldly, without fear or favor. But before we do that, we'll briefly answer one other question. Can faithful Catholics ever criticize the Pope in any way? As I read from the article on Pope Honorius I, taken from the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia, it's a standard reference work published in the reign of St. Pius X. As I read from that article, ask yourself if this would qualify as a criticism of the Pope. Quote, It is clear that no Catholic has the right to defend Pope Honorius. He was a heretic, not in intention, but in fact. In other words, he wasn't guilty of being a heretic. He intended to be orthodox, but he wasn't. Bet you weren't expecting that. It is clear that no Catholic has the right to defend Pope Honorius. He was a heretic, not in intention, but in fact. Now, obviously, when speaking of the Pope, the fourth commandment plies and in spades. If you can't access your dad without sin, how much less the Holy Father? You have to tread lightly. But that being said, yes, with all due respect being observed, and it has to be observed, we can speak in these terms of the Pope without sin. It's unpleasant. Speaking personally, it fills me with great sorrow. I will be as dispassionate, as clinical as possible, but I'm going to take the Pope's invitation to speak plainly, boldly, without favor or fear regarding this synod. Now, for anyone interested in the gory details, probably the best article is by Sandra Magister. You know, there's a lot of this whack job stuff out there. Don't waste your time with it. You'll confuse yourself or scandalize yourself. Probably the best article is by Sandra Magister. It's called The True Story of the Synod, Director, Performers, Assistants. It's on the Chiesa website. He's an Italian journalist, but there's an English option. Okay. We're only going to hit a few of the high points. We're certainly not going to get into much detail. Okay, by now everyone is well aware that on October 13th, a document was suddenly released to the press by the Synod. This document called the Relatio contained paragraphs speaking of the gifts brought to the church by those with San Francisco orientations and also of communion for the divorced and remarried. These two ideas were first floated in a general way on July 28th of last year at a press conference given by the Holy Father himself when he made his now very well-known remark, slightly edited, quote, If a person is perversely oriented and seeking the Lord has goodwill, who am I to judge? Close quote. And he also breached the marriage practice of the Eastern Orthodox. Now, Eastern Orthodox, you can trade your wife in on a new model. You get, you get three runs at it. And, uh, and so here's the Pope. Quote, the Orthodox give a second chance of marriage, they allow it. But I believe that this problem must be studied within the context of the pastoral care of marriage. Close quote. Then in preparation for the Synod on the Family, a, question was distri- a questionnaire was distributed worldwide, which included specific questions regarding perverse unions and communion for the divorced and remarried. The obvious and unsurprising result of both the Pope's remarks, and this questionnaire especially, was to start to shape and mold public opinion in such a way as to suggest these questions that could be, could be considered open, not only in theory, but also in practice. In February, the Pope then appointed Cardinal Casper to give a talk to the cardinals who were gathered in Rome. Now, in the 90s, Cardinal Casper was already promoting the idea of giving communion to the divorced and remarried. 
Many cardinals opposed the talk. The Pope said that Cardinal Casper's theology was, quote, profound theology, theology done on one's knees, close quote. Casper has consistently claimed that he coordinated with the Pope, but he's a, a shameless liar, so you know, we can take that for whatever it's worth. In response to Castor's evil proposals, the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith planned to publish an opposing presentation by a prominent cardinal. But the publication of that text was vetoed by the Pope. At the Synod, the Pope appointed a committee who both drafted and suddenly released the Relatio. The document released the press on October 13th to the great consternation and displeasure of many of the cardinals and bishops present. For example, Cardinal Mueller, the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, stated in the document that it was, quote, undignified, shameful, completely wrong, close quote. Cardinal Napier of South Africa said by the release of the document, the church has been put in, quote, a position that is virtually irredeemable. The message has gone out, this is what the Synod is saying, this is what the Catholic Church is saying, and it's not what we're saying at all. No matter how we try correcting that, there's no way of retrieving it. The message has gone out. It's not a true message. Whatever we say hereafter is going to be as if we're doing some damage control. Close quote. Cardinal Burke stated, quote, Well, the individual intervention of the Synod Fathers are not published. Yesterday's Relatio, which is merely a discussion document, was published immediately and, I am told, even broadcast live. You do not have to be a rocket scientist to see the approach at work, which is certainly not of the church. Well, the document in question purports to report only a discussion which took place among the Synod Fathers, and in fact advances positions which many Synod Fathers do not accept, and I would say, as faithful shepherds of the flock, cannot accept. Close quote. Cardinal Burke. The Pope, more than anyone else, as the pastor of the universal church, is bound to serve the truth. The Pope is not free to change the church's teachings with regard to the immorality of perverse acts or the insolubility of marriage or any other doctrine of the faith. Close quote. We all owe a great debt of gratitude to those cardinals who defended the faith in such trying circumstances up there, most especially Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Pell, and Cardinal Mueller. Even after the Synod Fathers voted to remove several offensive paragraphs in the document, at the end of the Synod, the Pope had them placed back in. Sandra Magister notes, no matter what may be the outcome of the synod, intentionally devoid of any conclusion, the effect desired by its directors has to a large extent been reached. On perversion is on divorce and remarriage. In fact, the new talk of reform inserted into the global media circuit is worth much more than the favor actually gained among the synod fathers by the proposals of Casper. Close quote. No matter what may be the outcome of the synod, the effect desired by its directors has to a large extent been reached. On perversion, as on divorce and marriage, in fact, the new talk of reform inserted into the global media circuit is worth much more than the favor actually gained among the Synod Fathers by the proposals of Casper. Again, we see the exact same tactics as those employed in the Battle of Humana Vitae, making a clever use of secular press and the theologians, manipulating the situation to create an atmosphere, an expectation, a loosening up or perhaps a change in church teaching just around the bend with the goal of changing the beliefs and ultimately the behaviors of the faithful. And the revolutionary results are already starting to come in, not just in the media, but in the chanceries. I quote, In comments about the Vatican sitting on the family this week, Martin Curry, the Archbishop of St. John's in Newfoundland, stated, Hopefully you can find some accommodation where San Francisco unions are accepted and respected and they can have a part in the church life. 
Close quote. So here we are. As we all know, the Catholic Church is a mystical body of Christ. And in some mysterious way, the life of the Church shares in and goes through the various events of the earthly life of her head. In my opinion, and that's all it is, we're now in the passion of the Church. And as I reflect on the events of the Synod, I think the specific point of the passion we're currently experiencing is the denial of Peter. One more thought. One of the most startling aspects of these events is the date the, the Relatio was released, October 13th. It was the 97th anniversary of the miracle of the Son and the 41st anniversary of the approved apparition of related to Sister Agnes Sasagawa at Akita, Japan. There's a lot to think about there. We'll just consider one part of the message of Akita. And if you're not familiar, there was a statue. Our Lady would speak with her statue of her, and it cried human tears 101 times during, during these apparitions. So it's, uh, it's Our Lady in tears. I quote from Our Lady. This is approved. My dear daughter, listen well to what I have to say to you. With the rosary, pray for the pope, the bishops, and the priests. The work of the devil will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops. The priests who venerate will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. Churches and altars will be sacked. The church will be full of those who accept compromises, and the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. The demon will be especially implacable against souls consecrated to God. The thought of the loss of so many souls is the cause of my sadness. With the rosary, pray for the pope, the bishops, and priests. The work of the devil will infiltrate in the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops. The priests of venerate me will be scorned and opposed by other priests. Churches and altars will be sacked. The church will be full of those who accept compromises. And the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. Okay, whatever you do, besides praying your rosary, don't let yourself be scandalized. Remember that being scandalized means allowing another's actions or words to lead you into sin. Okay? It's especially important that we don't allow ourselves to be scandalized by anything the leaders in the church do, be it a priest, be it bishops, be it cardinals, or even the Holy Father himself. Because if we allow ourselves to be scandalized by those things, that can easily damage our faith or even cause us to lose our faith. Don't let yourself be scandalized. They can't change anything that is essential to salvation. Things could get pretty rough, but it won't be impossible. Stay on board. We're in a storm. You don't jump off the ship into the waves when you're trying to ride out a storm. 
Now, before leaving this unpleasant topic, let's reflect on some thoughtful comments we've heard before. They were written by Frank Sheed during the terrible chaos that followed the council. Frank Sheed. In the criticisms uttered by many, there's a failure to see Christ as the whole point. So much in the daily running of the church they find depressing. This priest or that cares for nothing but money. The hierarchy know nothing of the emotional and intellectual problems which are eating away at their people's faith. The curia is simply a bureaucracy using every trick to hold on to its power. As for the Pope, it all adds up to the institutional church, with so many wondering if their spiritual integrity will permit them to remain in it. But institutional Israel, the chosen people as the prophets show it, was even worse than the harshest critics think the Catholic Church. Yet it never occurred to the holiest of the Jews to leave it. They knew however evilly the administration behaved, Israel was still the people of God. So with the church. An administration is necessary if the church is to function, but Christ is the whole point of the functioning. We are not baptized into the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity in the beatific vision of the Pope. St. John Fisher could say in a public sermon, if the Pope won't reform the curia, God will. A couple of years later, he laid his head on Henry VIII's block for papal supremacy, followed to the same block by St. Thomas More, who had spent his youth under the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, lived his early manhood under the Medici Pope, Leo X, and died for papal supremacy under Clement VII as time-serving a pope as Rome had had. Christ is the point. I myself admire the present pope. At that time, he's writing, it's Paul VI. But even if I criticize as harshly as some do, even if his successor proved to be as bad as some of those who have gone before, even if I sometimes find the church as I have to live in it a pain in the neck, I should still say that nothing a pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church, though I might well wish that he would. (laughs) Israel, through its best periods as through its worst, preserved the truth of God's oneness in a world swarming with gods, and the sense of God's majesty in a world sick with its own pride. So with the church. Under the worst administration, say as bad as John the Twelfth's a thousand years ago, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the limit of our willingness. Close quote. In the criticisms uttered by many, there is a failure to see Christ as the whole point. We are not baptized in the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity in the beatific vision of the Pope. Nothing a Pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church, though I might well wish that he would. Under the worst administration, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the limit of our willingness. Christ is the point. No matter how bad it gets, we can still receive 
Christ's life and the sacraments. We can still be in union with them to the limit of our willingness. We can still learn Christ's truth. Here we are immersed in this atmosphere of lies and manipulation in our society and even to a certain degree in our own beloved church, but we can still learn Christ's truth. Christ our Lord told us that the truth would set us free. Each one of us needs to ask himself, am I open to the truth? No matter how painful it might be to me personally, do I really want to see the truth? Or am I living in a reality of my own? Pontius Pilate asks, what is truth? With truth looking him right in the eyes. Have I imitated him? And closed off my heart and mind to Christ's truth in any way, be it ever so small. In Luke 2.35, the prophet Simeon tells our lady that a sword of sorrow will pierce her soul, that out of many hearts, thoughts may be revealed. Each one of us needs to ask himself, if the thoughts of my heart were revealed right now, what would everyone see? Who or what is ruling in my heart? Is it money or possessions? Is it the love of pleasures? Is it a desire for honor, fame, reputation? Is it a desire for power? Is it me? Have I made myself an idol? If the thoughts in my heart were revealed right now, what would everyone see? Who is the king of my heart? If it isn't Christ, the most gentle and loving of kings, if it isn't Christ, then open your heart and invite him in.